Okay, you know, I'm really so happy to see you. You and I have had quite a chuckle in the last <laughs> five minutes thought we turned the video recorder on. <laughs> of course, of course, of course. And one of the reasons that I really like to talk about you is because I get to meet the, let us say, the brand new face of the enemy face to face. Philosophy. <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. <laughs> I, you know, I really think that, well, I don't know. I'm happy to, to stand for philosophy uh -huh. and, and, to, and to give well, my say, because it really has, uh, I don't know, like I said, I think it's, I think it's wonderful. So. Well, the reason <laughs> that I called it that was, a, again, a joke, because as, as we have discussed prior to this, as well as this time, is, is that the reason why philosophy has so much weight in our society is because they continue to ask the really weighty questions and still don't come up with actual answers. If they did come up with the answers, then the philosophy department would get closed down because they had already solved all the problems. <laughs> And that's, in fact, what I run across in uh, computer science and engineering. That's one of the reasons why I migrated into um, contracting, because the contractors are interested in getting the job paid, get, excuse me, getting the job done, to where people who work for a corporation, they don't really care whether the company gets its work done or not. They've got a job, okay, but the contractors have got a time limit. We got to get that thing out the door by that amount of time. And so I kind of enjoyed it that way because there was a finish to it that we had something to do and we knew where we were going uh, with it to where often that's not the case. And that's also true with engineering. I mean, you're either going to build that bridge or not, right? And that we know when that bridge is built because it's going to have traffic on it later, right? That's the yeah. whole point. But that's not the pro that's kind of the problem with both religion and philosophy is where's the traffic? They're still building the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> but don't you see that as uh, very interesting? I don't know. In terms of like... Um, because, um, I don't know, just in terms of like, I don't know, um, you valuing um, engineering for kind of being goal-oriented, but also valuing Buddhism for nothing to do, nowhere to go. Yeah, that's the whole point of the bridge is finish doing it and you're done with it. Right. And now you've got it. That's the whole thing. So the job well done in this case is to clean the house. And now you've got a nice house to live in. Okay. But the whole point of philosophy is let's buy another book. Put it on the bookshelf. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of philosophy gets mixed in with religion and, and, and all. So I guess that, yeah. That's the whole thing is, is that why when we can see for ourselves what's going on and we keep evaluating it and we keep seeing the way that it is, it just leave it that way. Because you could say that philosophy in a way is just more what about isms. <laughs>
that people have throughout their lives. Well, what if this is wrong or what if that goes wrong or maybe I forgot that piece of paper or let me go check to see or all of this doing things repetitive over and over again when there's really nothing to do. Interesting. You could say that also that it happens with um, planned obsolescence of automobiles. They want you to keep buying their cars next year, so they're going to make this one uh, surprisingly ugly so that you buy it on the surprise and sell it on the ugly. <laughs> totally. Well, I suppose one thing to mention is that they're pretty much the history of philosophy can be pretty much summed up by big philosophers coming in and writing big books and saying, this is it. No more philosophy, because I've solved it. Everybody <laughs> else in the world will attack him for years, and now yeah. we've got the whole thing rolling again. That's the whole point. Uh, and, and generally, for so, that's because they're probably wrong. They're that always the wrong. Is, yeah, they're <laughs> always wrong because they're always being philosophers at it anyway. That what, Like I've said before in a teasing way, the, the philosophy schools need to be populated by Professor Tremeritus in engineering. I know the, the engineering professors would love that, I'm sure. They would, <laughs> I mean, well, I don't know. I mean, that's pretty much what's happening. Like, STEM takes over, humanities gets pushed out. Like, in a way that's happening. It's happening because of capitalism, um, so. Oh, no, I was, I, yes, I can understand that, but I was thinking of it totally from the different position of that the engineers, um, <laughs> make a joke out of it, capitalize on the fact that they can create capital. And philosophy just keeps stirring the pot and they don't come up with any solutions, any correct things. They don't come up with a product. They don't come up with an actual answer. <laughs> they just keep asking the same old questions over and over again. And in fact, the engineers could go in and clean house by answering most of the important questions that philosophers keep asking and set them straight. But that's, hmm. the, that's the thing. Like, uh, do you know about Wittgenstein? No, who? Uh, he was a 20th century philosopher, and he was actually an engineer. And he he did that. He tried to do that exact thing. He was like, y'all philosophers don't know anything. I'm coming in here. I'm an engineer. I'm going to solve this all. He wrote this, he wrote this big book called The Logicus Tractatus. Then he was like, I'm done. This is it. Philosophy is over. And it was like, it was just, it was just completely wrong. <laughs> so... You know, anyway, if, you, whatever you they engage with philosophy, you're going to have to do philosophy. So it's like you can't really end philosophy by doing philosophy, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it just happens over, over and over. It's right. It's, it's <laughs> like, uh, what was her name um, that had the sock puppets back in the 1960s and they kept having the same song over and over again and the name of the song was the song <laughs> never ends? Exactly. It's a song that never ends. <laughs> yeah. And it goes on and on and on like that. So that's the whole quality, though, of the philosophy. But you were going to tell a story about uh, uh, Christianity in uh, response to the one of the stories I told you. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, 
again, people can have this view, but I'll just say I was talking to someone once and they were um, the head of a Republican club at, at a university. Um, actually, a super really nice person. I could I could tell that they were actually legitimately uh, a really good hearted person. Um, they had a very intense family, you know, I'll just put it like that, you know, that had a lot of expectations on them, all that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, they, they grew up within this uh, context and they they told me something very surprising. We were talking about religion because, you know, they were always they were always trying to get me, you know, and always trying to make me uh, conservative and see things uh, their way, which is fair enough. You know, I like, you know, I'm not against interacting with other people's opinions. Um, and um, we were having a discussion and it was me, one other person and this other person um, talking about this. And I asked them, we were talking about like, cause they were, I think both of them were actually arguing that you need, if there was no God, there would be no morality because God is what uh, grounds morality. And I asked them, so does that mean, I asked this person, if there was no God and I killed this person, that wouldn't be wrong. And they said, yes. And I was like, that's that's a lot <laughs> that's pretty that's that's intense like whew. but you know again they but have did you go but did you go down then the the aisle of but if someone let us say the two of them standing there if one of them died right there on the spot <clears throat> due to murder would the other one like that or not like it I didn't ask that. With, with or without, whether okay. or not God said that it was wrong. So if there is no God and they're left with just the circumstances, then how do they feel about it? Do they feel embarrassed, ashamed, frightened? What kind of feeling do you have when somebody that's standing next to you just gets his head blown off or something by a sniper? That's an interesting question. Um... Okay, because now they have to exactly examine their own feelings about mm -hmm. it, which is really where morality always comes from, is things that we like and we don't like. But they're trying to make it a hard for reality by saying that, oh, it's not how I feel, it's God said so. Well, now what we can think of also is the idea of... Um, <clears throat> mutual consent in a group because if everybody that's standing around and sees that guy getting his head blown off nobody there is going to like that probably even the guy who did the blowing <laughs> but no one there is happy about that situation and so we can see that that kind of consensus if we see that our surroundings are our god and that we can see the way that things are accepted right there. But we're not always going to get 100% consensus because it is possible that the guy who did uh, the shooting is now happy. He thought that it was a good thing he had done. Okay, and so now you have, but the conflict is not a philosophical question at all. It is a, uh, it's not even a moral question, it's a feeling question. How do you feel about what's going on? This is where the Buddha comes in in, in such a remarkable way 
uh, in the quality of Paticca Samuppada, that we understand now <clears throat> that uh, the, the three basic feelings that we have, basic feelings, is the feeling I like it or the feeling of pleasure, the feeling of discomfort, or the feeling of confusion in the six that is mixed, or I don't know which one. You you can you can get that sometimes when uh, like uh, Westerners will come to Thailand and then get a drink off the street, and they'll taste that thing and they don't know whether they like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> so and and we're often that way with with new foods, new vegetables, new new uh, ways of of cooking and all of that. We get really confused about it. We don't know whether we like it or not. But we also have that with with facts or information. That is, in fact, what a joke is all about, is right up until the point of the, the punchline is when we're following along thinking we know what's going on, and then the punchline, and there's a moment of confusion, and then resolution. Mm -hmm. And it's that confusion that causes that resolution in into laughter because some people don't get to joke, and they're just staying confused, and they don't like not knowing <laughs> right so this is that feeling of confusion so going back to the liking that we like things that if we do that ignorantly then tanha the vedana turns to tanha which means if i if i like it that means i want it and if i want things that i don't have then that's the definition of suffering, having to have uh, desires for things that we don't have. And if we have the desire for something that we don't have, that's when the danger of issues of morality will come in. That if I want it bad enough, I'll do bad enough things to get it. Sure. And I'll hurt people to do that. Okay. So this is also where we get to point of if I like it, it must be good and I'm bad without it. Or if it is, if I like it and I will be good to go if I get it, then that thing that I want must be good. And if I don't like the feeling of something, then it's easy for me to say, then that thing is bad. Like sitting down in a, uh, a regular, let us say, a plastic chair like this one, and as we sit down, somebody happens to slip a shoe in, and now we're sitting on the shoe. We don't like the feeling of sitting on the shoe, and so we take the shoe and we throw it because we don't like the shoe. That's the connection that we make. If I don't like what something is associated with, then I don't like that thing, which makes that thing now bad. This is where morality comes from. It comes from feelings. And this is how the human mind works. And I can understand that Christianity don't want to know this. Yeah, totally. Because, because they already have a list of rules that they think that God has posted already except that Christians still have issues of morality about, you know, where do you, where does God draw the line? And the answer to that within Buddhism, the Buddha got a simple answer to that. You draw the line where you cross, where the, if you go further than that, you would have crossed the line 
that should have been there in the first place. In other words, if you harm someone, or even if you're harming yourself, if you're doing things that are unsatisfying and unsatisfactory, then let's take a look at that <clears throat> so that we can make some improvements on it. That's like uh, in engineering, if you find a place where there is stress and metal gets fatigued, that's one of the things about metal is, is that it does get fatigued when it gets stressed. And so you have to make sure that whatever stress that the metal is under is not under so much stress that it will become weak due to that stress. Simple engineering point. Right? No, no need for philosophers to philosophize about, mm, is that strut big enough or not? <laughs> 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 and so this is the whole quality of morality is saying that when morality comes from an outside source that's independent of the object that it is applying this rule to, that's when they're subject to a lot of mistakes. And that's what philosophy has been doing. They're trying to apply rules, basically, that they gave each other, thinking that they came from a higher source. Uh, which is, you know, because basically modern philosophy came out of medieval Christianity. The Christians were the ones who started philosophy because they couldn't answer the questions that ordinary people were asking them. Wow. Like, like three in one, and I'm not talking about shoe polish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. <laughs> um. Well, I really like, uh, I mean, uh, there's, you know, you said a lot, so there's a lot to respond to. Um, I'd say uh, one paper that I really enjoyed, and because it was so difficult, but I think really draws kind of exactly to what you're saying, and I think would really kind of mesh with what you're saying, um, is uh, a journal, I guess, yeah, some, some philosophy paper um, by someone who said, Let's consider what she was interested in, whether or not there were there are um, ethical truths that are true, independent of whether or not we say they are. So like we think that lying. Well, you know, I mean, she uses, OK, I guess we'll, we'll use murder is wrong. Right. Every, you know, that's the Buddhist. You know, everyone agrees murder is wrong. Right. She, what so what she's trying to figure out is whether or not I told you join the army. <laughs> I, I told you joined the police force yeah totally so you know there's always going to be qualifications <laughs> you know murder. well that's the whole that's the whole point you said that you started off with getting me to convince that murder was wrong big time and we're sure. saying yes but that's not a universal mental position right let's say murder of innocent people or something, <laughs> you know, I, it, it's going to be very, yeah, it's. Putin thinks that that's a very good thing to do. Right, right, right. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. But, okay. in... but a lot of people, so we have to go back to the point about the general consensus because sure. there's always going to be outliers. Of course. 
There's always going to be armies simply because all of those people who think murder is wrong really think that there's excuses to do it. <laughs> I think murder is totally wrong, but I will kill. Yeah. Sometimes gleefully. <laughs> yeah. Okay. How do I say that? Well, just by breathing in and out. Right, right, right. Of course. The <laughs> bugs. I found a bug in my salad today. <laughs> yeah, I found a bug in my salad today. That bug is dead. <laughs> Very dead. Um, but so we do don't care about bugs. So, cl so clearly, murder totally is not the point. We, every one of us, has a murderous instinct. Well, that's every one of okay right and so we go are we going to go by instinct or are we going to go by wisdom Definitely. wisdom would say that it is generally in almost all cases wrong to murder but wisdom would still say generally in almost all cases it wouldn't say 100 percent of the time mm -hmm. Definitely. um but so let's take that uh, as, right. our, as let's our, go for that. OK, one, so, almost 100 percent, almost almost right. Almost 100 percent of time murder. Let's put it to humans, too. So we don't have to get into the human animal distinction um, or even plants. You know, you can murder a plant. <laughs> um, the monks are not allowed even to cut plants, but you see, that's not a, uh, a law against restrictions on plants. It's using that mental restriction that the Brahmins and the Jains had to the advantage of the monks. Of course, yeah. So now they don't have to cut grass. You don't have to have gardeners. Monks don't have to garden. They've got a rule against it. <laughs> they can't build, they can't, you know, they, I mean, they've got rules against the things. And so that makes their, their life really, really easy. Totally. Yeah, I could have used that rule when I was younger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, I don't cut plants. <laughs> yeah. Um, or, or, or what would our food industry be like if there were no killing of animals? But in fact, humans do, and uh, and Christians who think that murder is wrong, thou shalt not kill, is a uh, a thing in the Bible, and yet it is done regularly. I mean, people go around killing plants just because the grass is too tall. It's because of an eyesore of the human that they go around killing a lot of plants. A lot of animals that way die too. In fact, that's what most happens with stray dogs; they get killed. And that seems to be quite all right with our society, including all of the Christians in the society that have that great big rule in the book that says thou shalt not kill. And it's really true even for humans. We'll say, OK, well, we'll make it for humans. And then that young Christian gets drafted and gets a gun. Yeah. Now he's going to and his parents are going to be quite OK with that. Yeah. Um, but. I'll, I'll, I'll try to go through it quickly. So we have the. the <laughs> okay. All the, right. Sorry. I'm, I'm just destroying your whole quality of uh, absolute rules that come from some god or something. <laughs> well, no, that's that's exactly what it's about. Um, 
So we have like the proposition murder is almost and always wrong in 99% of cases. There might be some exceptions, um, but very much in general. So we have that um, idea. Is that true independent of whether or not humans think it's true? So is that like two plus two equals four, where that is the truth that, you know, whether or not humans think that two plus two equals four, two plus two still equals four, right? Um, or is that something more like red means stop, where it's more of just right. Here, a... Here's the answer to that. The answer <laughs> is that two plus two equals four is number one, a human construction, and number two, without the humans, irrelevant because animals don't count they just know bigger and smaller that's <laughs> all they know and we right. know that monkeys know that because they get fed based upon um touching something on the screen like this time he's going to have to touch only green dots next time he has to touch the biggest squares you know that kind of stuff so they can figure that kind of stuff out but actual mathematics they generally don't have it. So without humans, there not only is no, <clears throat> let us say, the human universal language of mathematics is irrelevant without humans to speak and to know that language of mathematics. Mm -hmm. Okay. The same is true with morality. That this is, in fact, a uh, alligator eat alligator, dog eat dog, and human eat human world. Right. Well, again, that's that's. Uh, let me just quickly go through it because that's that's, that's that, again that's the whole point of the paper is to say uh -huh. that exact thing. Um, so it's asking whether or not this, but you know, it is interesting whether or not this is is whether or not truth, whether or not it's true independent of humans. Um, whether or not we think it is, because we want to be able to think, well, even if like humans thought that murder wasn't wrong, like it was part of our psychology that murder is fine and we went around murdering each other, that would still, we want to say, people still murdering each other would still be wrong, right? In terms of what we think now, in terms of like, it, you know, murder is pretty gruesome. Uh, it's hard to see someone being murdered and not say, you know, that is wrong, whether or not those people thought that it was wrong at the time. Um, depends upon how you use the word wrong. Right. Um, so and the word wrong here has to do with how much you feel about it being wrong. That's what the word wrong means is when somebody says that it's wrong. Because they don't like it. And if they say it wrong with a great big capital W-O, capital R, capital G, then you can put a God in there someplace by capitalizing on it to where, in fact, what's really going on is it's wrong and it's really wrong because I have really negative feelings about it. That's the reality of the situation. And that the, the ignorance of people will bring gods and absolutes and all of that kind of thing into play. But the reality is, is that we and, and we can find groups of people who will get together uh, to chant together how wrong it is. OK, starvation is wrong. Because the people who are starving don't like it. 
But normally, and, and I got several examples of that. One of them was in the time of the Buddha, there was a famine and starvation. Had to do more with weather. In Sri Lankan right now, there is a huge famine going on in Sri Lanka right now. You know why? Do you know that there is, in fact, a major, major crisis in Sri Lanka? No, no, no. There's two components to it. One is that they did not pay the Chinese the money that they owed the Chinese. And so the Chinese took over their number one port. And so now there's uh, not imported stuff coming in, but they could feed themselves if the government had not made a rule saying, oh, we're going to go totally 100% organic and banned and made illegal fertilizers and all kinds of stuff. And so now Sri Lanka is starving, right? I wonder Starvation if the Ukraine has all. anything to do with that as well. Pardon? I wonder if the Ukraine situation has anything to do with that as well, whether or not they well, buy. No, Ukraine has got the exact opposite because they're the breadbasket. You've got a half a right. dozen countries that are starving because Russia won't let the Ukrainians send their uh, food out of the Black Sea. Right, that's what I'm wondering. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why the Ukrainians are firing on the Russian ships is to get them to stop the blockade so that they can feed the world. The other example would be North Korea, because North Korea has had some pretty heavy duty starvation. But that starvation, again, was politics. Yeah. So the question is, is starvation wrong? Or is it merely a result of political situations or the result of weather? And the wrongness is we don't like it. Yeah, I like this way of putting it. So you can say either... Is this a, you know, again, an objective fact or is this just a psychological fact? That's the question of the paper. Um, and the person argues that let's consider human beings. Um, you know, we have come here due to, uh, you know, uh, natural selection, right? So if someone wants to say that there is these uh, objective and, moral and, moral facts and survival of the fittest, you got to exactly that in there because, oh, yeah. because that's the whole point that we're here about is the survival of the fittest rather yeah. than the survival of those who were weak, but they got survived because somebody told someone else that it was wrong to kill the weak. <laughs> um, so. They, their question is, what is the relationship that natural selection, the process that has created humans, what relationship is that going to have if we imagine that there are these truth independent uh, moral facts like murder is wrong in 99% of cases? Um, what well, is going to be the relationship? Already in every government of the, un of the world, every government has laws and rules and almost every one of them, I'd say all of them have rules about murder. So I don't understand the question because, I mean, if if God did make the rules, how are humans going to be different? Which is another side of the issue. OK, if God made the rules or if God didn't make the rules, how would things be different one way or the other? The answer is God, whether he made the rules or not, is irrelevant. To how humans behave. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the question is like, so what is going to be the relationship? And then like, then you say, OK, let's imagine that they're not truth independent, right? It kind of seems like these uh, maxims that we have, like murder is wrong, stealing is wrong, and murder is especially wrong when it's to your family, right? That mm -hmm. seems like ex extraordinarily helpful for a species to survive. <laughs> 
So it kind of looks like, yeah, it kind of looks like our moral ideas are really just products of evolution and actually don't really correspond to anything. Uh, truth, <laughs> you know, true, objectively true. Again, I think that, again, this has been like the most interesting thing for me, but, uh, you know, uh, it's difficult because it's like, it's it's a pretty uh, heavy thing to concede to <laughs> that, you know, it's just a product of our evolution, you know. Actually, uh, while that is true, it's not evolution over millions of years, et cetera. It is the evolution of each individual human from their birth up until their adulthood. And maybe then they kept each get some Buddhism and then they evolve even further than that. Okay. And basically, you probably heard about this, and we've got several examples. One is some Indian children who were taken. Others were like the story of Tarzan. I think Romulus and Remus were that way, the guys who did Rome. But there are other occasions to where a child is not raised by humans. He's raised in an animal way, and he has much more animal features in his style of living, that in fact, what we do as humans to our children is, is that we beat the, um, uh, the barbarian out of them. We beat that barbarian out of each one of the children and one of the, and one of the hammers that we use to beat the barbarian out of the child is by having these rules. Because each little barbarian child is not wise enough to figure out what's the right course of action because the society that he's raised in is very complicated. Therefore, what we can say is, is that we actually society needs these rules and they need these rules hard and fast so that we can train our children up in the way that they should go so when they are old, they will kiss ass. That's very Marxist. <laughs> yeah, well, it's very, it's Marx got it from the Bible. I'm just quoting the Bible. Right. In fact, the actual quote, I, I forgot where it is, but I think it, gosh, it may be in Psalms. So it's really old. Train up a child and the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it the way that he was trained. That's exactly what uh, it, this is all about. It's, it's not about the actuality of whether God did make the rules. It's whether we can convince people that God made the rules so that the people will obey the rules so that we can have a decent society because they're not smart enough on their own to figure out what the right way to live in the first place. So as we evolve, we need to give up the rules and start living wisely so that we can see that in this moment, it's better not to be angry at you. Then I can handle that. But if I can't, then I'm angry. And now I have to think, is it better for me to kill you now or what? <laughs> oh, man. Okay, that's when we need God because only God can stop an angry man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Bears, bears are pretty good at it too. I'd say. 
That's what the rules are for. The rules are for the ignorant. I got this, by the way, out of one of the suttas. This is the number 117 on right view. But that that sutta is actually seems to be the uh, the essence core, the essential core of the teachings of the Buddha. About that we uh, when we have what he calls wrong view, and I'm not even sure that he would use the word wrong. Now that we're having this conversation, it would be a good idea to go back into the poly to find out what is translated into the word wrong. Here. Because the wrong view is basically the view that I can get away with anything. There is no cops, no uh, no mothers, no fathers, no priests, no uh, rabbis, no common machine, no gods, no heavens, no hells, and I can go do anything I want to do to get what I want. Okay. And you see, that's the attitude of the drive-by shooter. That's the attitude of people who are wind going to wind up in prison if they're dumb and in politics if they're smart. Or in business if they're really smart. Or both. <laughs> or all three. Yeah. All right, so that's that's what we would refer to as wrong view in Buddhism is the point I can get away with it. So the ordinary right view is the conservative view. I won't go so far as to say the philosopher's view, but it's certainly the religious view. And that is the view that no, you can't get away with it. We've got a God here. And we've got a police force and we've got an army. And we've got teachers <laughs> and we've got social workers and we're going to do everything we can to make sure you can't get away with it. We're even going to hire prison guards to lock you up. And that's the whole point about we need a God is because that gives the people who are of ordinary right view justification that they can go kill people for killing. That's the whole catch 22 of capital punishment. If you're against killing, then you should not kill killers. No. And yet the Christians are the ones who were deepest into the killing. <laughs> they really like it. <laughs> Why? Because they think God likes it. Right. I mean, you know, obviously, like I'd like to think that not all Christians, I don't know that many Christians, I'll be honest, but yeah, there's definitely Christians that are anti capital punishment, you know, as long as we're adding I, qualifications. I, I swam in a sea as a child called Christianity, <laughs> Bible Belt. <laughs> right. No, but, uh, you know, yeah, totally. Uh, so. I'm not saying that they have cha they have not changed. They have, but they've gotten worse. <laughs> they have not improved. They've gone down deeper into that same rat hole of uh, we we are in charge because we believe that God made us in charge to to make sure that you do what God's rules are. Where in fact, basically, that's just hypocrisy. <laughs> Hypocrisy is making other people do the rules or keep the rules that we ourselves can't make or can't keep. We can make the rules, but we can't keep them. So we'll go make you keep them. That's the abortion, LGBTQ, 
racism and all of that other stuff is based upon the fact that um, the Christians are not good enough, but they're, they're at least better than somebody else. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's not much wisdom in there. So this is actually an important quality for um, uh, you studying philosophy at such a deep level as this is to recognize this whole third quality of that it's not even an issue of did God make the rules or not, or is God there or not? That's the irrelevancy. Yeah, of I don't it it's being relevant. Yeah. That's, there, there's another way of saying, you know, that the atheists and the Christians actually argued for in the, uh, gosh, for more than 10 years back in the 2000s and whatnot with mm -hmm. um, uh, old Klaus and uh, um, Dawkins and the whole uh, I was really into that, yeah. <laughs> and, and they never, either side, uh, yeah. convinced anyone yeah. of anything. Yeah. That if you go to the university and bring the Christian in, then whatever the university folks you thought, so if they were already all atheists, they stayed atheists. Nobody changed their mind in any of those conversations. Yeah, absolutely. But the, but the point about it is, is that they, uh, the whole question that was asked was the wrong question. The question that they were asking between the atheist and the, and the Christians was, does God exist? And that's actually irrelevant. Think about it. The reality is, is that there is no reality to it. God does not come down the street with a marching band. <laughs> and even if they did, we wouldn't know if it truly is God. We wouldn't know if it's an illusion or not. Uh, let us say, um, uh, that, uh, if we can get pretty close to 99% sure, we can get some physicists in here to get that other extra 1%. The fact yeah, is I mean, that's that we don't even, we don't even need the physicists now with all their scientific equipment because we've right now got zero evidence. <laughs> The only marching God does is down the street between the ears of some people. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, that's an irrelevant question for, for the atheists and the Christians to ask and right. try to. The more relevant question, which is getting to it, is do I exist or not? That's a more irrelevant, a relevant question, especially in the sense, do I exist as an entity strong enough that, it, that I survive death itself? In other words, what is the soul? Because if there is no soul, then God becomes irrelevant by choice, because the only reason why we need a God is we need some kind of law enforcement who's going to dig you up out of your grave just to beat your ass. And if there is no grave for the, a God to dig up and there's no ass to kick, there's no football to kick, there's nothing to put into heaven, nothing to put into hell because the guy actually died, then the whole quality of God and religion becomes irrelevant. What becomes more relevant is what happens when we're still alive, not what happens after we die. And that's the point about God, because while we're alive, there's no God. While we're alive, there is no evidence. That's where Nietzsche was coming from. 
was is that God does not exist, but he said it in the wrong way by saying God is dead. What he was really means is, is that the God that I believed in is dead or I've changed my mind. But then he added that kicker to it. Therefore, I am free. And he was not. That in fact, that was the problem even with Freud, that even though that Freud could do armchair empirical psychology and all of that, he didn't do any psychotherapy. He was not any good at curing anything. He was just observing and seeing what he saw without any solution to the problem. That's where um, uh, the problem with God. So what if God is dead or alive? If you're still not free? Because that's what happens to the atheists. They're not free. Even though they don't believe the God that the Christians believe in, they still believe in something or another that makes the rules. Yeah. I mean, again, it's, it's, it's really difficult to accept um, the idea that something like murder is wrong is just a fact about our psychology, right? I think that's just not something that anyone wants to think. I think we'd all prefer if murder actually really was wrong. <laughs> well, a better way, though, for you to understand it personally without trying to convince anyone else. I'm not, mm -hmm. you know, this is just I could go ahead and say it. It's the way that I have learned to see it sure. is that um, it's abhorrent and that i would not hit anyone necessarily do so hard enough with enough equipment to actually damage them and that if i did damage someone i would make very very sure that they were well taken care of because of my own feelings but i also recognize that these are my feelings that i find it abhorrent that I would not want to kill some. I would rather be killed no. than kill. Why? Because if I get killed, then it's all over and I don't have to worry about it. If I kill someone, now I've got to deal with my own aftermath. Yeah. Okay, so if that's the if we can look at it like that, that is abhorrent to me. And that most humans think that way most of the time. That's what makes it wrong is because most of the people find it abhorrent most of the time. We don't like it. We don't like the idea of getting killed. But um, Stalin was the one who said that murder is wrong, but genocide is okay. Yeah. All right. So killing a lot of people in Ukraine, like there's a lot of people killed in Ukraine. If Even if one of the dogs that, that lay around here, never mind that, or one of the humans that, that visit the house on a regular basis, he comes and visits and he dies here. Never mind whether somebody killed him or not. We've got a dead body on our hands right here, right now. That's abhorrent. And yet we can think of 120 kids get killed in uh, Ukraine. That is not a here now situation. That's merely a concept. <laughs> you and I only have a concept of 105 kids getting killed. We don't have 500 or 105 bodies laying here on our front porch all piled. 
Maybe. <laughs> okay, and so there's there's two different kinds of views then that we can begin to understand, and that is the view of our sensory awareness and actually putting up with killing and the results of killing, or whether it's merely a concept. And much of the time, the philosophers are thinking about killing and murder as a concept rather than something right here in front of us. I think that they would write better philosophy papers right after they got killed. Or maybe right after they kill somebody. <laughs> or maybe right after they get they're witnessing someone get killed. Because that makes it real. That mostly it's just a concept. It's not real. That's the problem with God. So murder is, is why does God have a rule against murder when both the murder and the God are just merely mental concepts? Yeah, I don't know. That seems like a really, uh, I don't know about <laughs> like equating the concept of God with, you know, the children that have been killed in Ukraine. Saying that that's but that's just this. mental concepts, but what you can go to Ukraine and make it part of your reality, mm -hmm. and that's different than merely conceptualizing about it because you can't go to wherever God is and make Him your reality. You can't do that because we don't know where He is, He doesn't give us that kind of information. With Ukraine, we've got maps. Wow. The Bible is a not much of a map. <laughs> well, it does tell you how to get there. <laughs> to be fair, Actually, does it? How? Well, how? you gotta. The first thing is you gotta die. <laughs> oh, but all of the billions or, of people who die don't get there, so that's not enough. Or and not only that, but a whole lot of living people think they've gotten there. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they actually thought like. You know Dante's Inferno? Like, they they actually thought, like, this one mountain cave, like, somewhere. I don't remember exactly where, but that was actually where you went. It was, like, the pathway to hell or whatever, and, like, Dante actually. Uh-huh, but that's Middle Ages. If you look at it at various times in history, an example of that is in the Old Testament. There is the show or the grave. Just... Whether there's resurrection or not is not even an issue. That was not part of the old Jewish culture, nor the Mediterranean culture. That the whole quality of afterlife and that kind of stuff, even early Greek mythology didn't have an afterlife. They just had the God immortal. Hades and the Styx and all of that kind of stuff was added to Greek mythology after Alexander went to India and got this Indian shtick. Um, rebirth and reincarnation came out of India and it infected the religious mind state of the people in the Western culture. I don't, don't think that's true because Hesiod's works and days, like the main religious Greek mythology text that we have, I'm pretty, not, definitely had Hades and that definitely had the underworld in it. What what date can you date Hades? Uh, for Hesiod, um, that's the same time as Homer. I don't know if you know. Oh, Homer's pretty early. But it's definitely way before Alexander. 
Yeah, but he was not before uh, the 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 date that's normally not normally the date that I have been given by a dear friend that I trust is 800 BC. Were you seeing at Homer? No, I'm not talking about Homer. I'm talking about 800 BC, not Homer. He was 600 BC. 800 BC was when the the uh, the Brahmins started using the concept of we are Brahmins and we deserve to be Brahmins and we do the Brahmin things and we take the Brahmin share of society because we each individual one was born Brahmin. And we were born Brahmin because we were good in the past and you were not born Brahmin because you were not good enough. Right. That's so, where all of that came from is justification for power. Divine right of kings. That's it. That and that got started in about 800 BC. And so by 600 BC, it could have already arrived uh, in in Greece. Yeah, well. I'm sure um, that's probably where it came from. You know, Plato thought he believed in reincarnation. Like that was uh, an important part of his philosophy as well. And that, you know, we've been a plant and we've been this and we've been that, you know, which is fun. Um, I don't know. I don't know much about uh, Indian theological history, honestly. Well, uh, the, the value in understanding it like that is to come back to the teachings of the Buddha for the point of that really we we need to keep our eyes open in this moment for what is dukkha and what is not dukkha. Mm. That's what it's really all about because if I can catch the dukkha in my mind before I go off and do a dukkha thing, then I'm better off. That this is what the uh, the the teaching of the mind is the forerunner. The Brahmins taught that uh, an action was like carving something into a tree or into a stone, and that a verbal action was like writing it in the sand or perhaps on paper. That's interesting. And that mental was like writing it in the air or on water. Interesting. And the Buddha came back and says, no, that's absolutely upside down, that the mind is the forerunner, that you're not going to harm someone if you don't have the thought of harming them first. Okay, and so the Dukkha is already in my mind. That's why I want to kill him, is I want to kill him to get the Dukkha out of my mind. The problem is, is that killing him probably is not going to eliminate my Dukkha. It's going to make it worse. That's an ignorant, stupid thing to do is to kill someone because you're angry at something that they've done because we're going to definitely create more trouble than we than we solve but let me ask you this because i i i truly think that this is kind of like you know the central or like i don't know a central question because we were talking a lot about like conservative politics and conservative people in general you know mm-hmm. and i think the most appropriate question that i would ask you is how do we become friends with them right I think that's Pardon? how, how do we become that? friends? Ah, well, there's let us say that the, the important thing is, is that each one of us get our own mind straightened out. Of course, first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Therefore, we are not going to be influenced by whenever they making their statement. We have to say, well, maybe or anything like that, that we actually come to understand the real nature of one's own mind. Mm -hmm. The second point is, is that that's the job to be done. Mm -hmm. It is not your job to fix them. That's mm -hmm. their job. Sure. But if they, if one of those guys wants you to help them fix their mind, you can give them the same tools that I've given you and they can work that way. But it's not your job to fix the world. That's where we I mean, that's our society's point. That's what Christianity and in politics is all about. Christianity is dying. Because they are in webbed in the and the vine of politics, especially the Republican Party, and it's what you could call a mutual deadly embrace. They will strangle each other. All right, the way to get out of that is for Christianity to separate itself from politics and go back to the original Christianity of it's up to each individual Christian to get his own mind straightened out. And when we have a whole bunch of Christians with proper minds, who needs the Republican Party? It's only because of the greed, ill will, and trying to force other people to do th way, things the way that we want to do. So as a dominant dude, we have to come out of saying, oh, I've got to help the world. No, you've got to get your own mind straightened out. And when you get your own mind straightened out, that's all you need. Let the world be. It's not your problem. We have been thinking that the world is our problem. We're taught that. Christians are taught that. Jews are taught that. Blacks are taught that from the other side. Okay, everybody thinks that the whole world and all of politics is something that everybody needs to be involved with. I'd like the story that imagine that the wagon has rolled down the hill and is now stuck in the creek. And so the guy who owns the wagon goes and gets everybody in town to help him to get his wagon out of the creek. But there's only room for each one to put their hand onto that wagon. And so you've got 100 people surrounding that wagon, each one of them pushing on that wagon, trying to get it out of the creek. Some on this side of the creek, some on that side of the creek, some in the creek, some on the truck, some under the truck, and everybody's pushing on that wagon. What's going to happen to that wagon? Is it going to come out of the creek or is it just going to get wrecked? <laughs> and that's the state of America and all kinds of politics. It's the more hands you have in pushing on it, the worse off it's going to be because everybody's pushing from their point of view. And so the first thing we have to learn is I, at least I'm going to stand back and enjoy the show. <laughs> I don't have to. Uh, cheer for one guy pushing or another guy pushing because I know that they're pushing against each other. And so there's no real reason to get involved with any of that, that that's what philosophy then the real philosopher is the one who stops philosophizing about other people's philosophy and starts having a ball with his own. I can dig that. Um... So there's a third one then. And that is, is that once you've come to the position that it's not your job to fix them, now you can begin to enjoy them the way they are. Yeah. And make friends with them and tease them. 
and laugh with a big, hearty belly laugh over some of the ridiculous things that they say, that they believe. <laughs> ah, you think God did it, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Geraldine, God took you into that clothing store, I know. <laughs> when in fact, no, it's actually our own desire. That's what it is. We are confused. We think if we want something bad enough that God wants us to want it. Interesting. Because we are not strong enough, we're still being victimized. And so we need a champion like a God to make what my I believe OK. But when I'm already cleaned out inside, and I'm no longer uh, and I'm no longer a victim and I am now a champion of my own thoughts. I don't need a God to back me up. I can see things the way they really are. Yeah, going back to what you something that you said earlier <coughs> earlier. Um, I think that is actually a super relevant point. Um, in terms of. Like they've done studies where they like had, you know, they present, I don't, I don't, I can't remember the study exactly, but they present people with like a certain issue or whatever, and then they present two arguments for it. And, you know, one will be completely logically unsound, doesn't make any sense, and the other one will be well put together or whatever. It's not actually really about whether or not the arguments, the things that like has more, that convince people more is not going to be whether or not the, act, the argument is actually well put together and like logically sound. It's really comes down to who speaks more. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's how you win an argument. You just talk more than the other person and, and you've won. <laughs> That's human psychology. It's amazing. It's beautiful. That's why I always win arguments. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, if you think about it, like, it's totally true. Like, I mean, it's just how it works. Like, you just keep going. And it's like, well, there you go. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, um, that person's really talking. They must really know what they're talking about. <laughs> are they they really want you to believe that they know what they're talking about? Okay, so there, it, there still has the quality of the per, and we and the other people don't know that only individual ones will know in their own mind if they look. But most of us don't even look. For that feeling of insecurity that I'm talking because I'm uh, uh, afraid that the other person may get a point in or or whatever like that, that it's. Um, it's, it's a matter of knowing one's own mind. That's the first thing. And then knowing that I, what we do have is good enough and strong enough that I don't have to fix other people. Yeah. I can leave them alone. Not only that, but I what I know is big enough and strong enough that I not only don't have to fix those other people, I can enjoy them the way they are. Yeah. Now that's that's the, that's the last point is is that I don't care whether you're wrong or not. I really think that your position is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. That's why I always make uh, um, things in, into a joke like that. Uh, the example would be um, 
on uh, Descartes, sure. I think is the way that they say his name, yeah. had the point of, uh, he actually did it in, in uh, Latin. I can't do the Latin. I remember it, it ends in ergo est, but. Yeah, Agato Ergo asked, I so, think, therefore I am. But he got that wrong too. How he should have said it was, I think, therefore I think I am. Mm -hmm. That's correct. But I think, therefore I am, that, that does there's no therefore there. Yeah. Thought is, you know, if you've got a thought, then you, then the thought is that I am. It's not that I. the thought makes me exist. It's the thought of me existing that makes me exist. <laughs> yeah, and that's actually something that I, uh, I caught on to this week uh, from watching another um, Buddha person was there. Like they mentioned that, like, it's so interesting that we think that you know, we're brought up, and I especially noticed this um, with myself with doing philosophy stuff. Um, we think that we have to keep thinking in order to exist, <laughs> right? That if we stop, then it's like, oh no, you know, like we're going to die or something, you know? So it's like we have to keep reaffirming that ego identity, you know, by continuing to think and continuing to figure out who we are, you know, and continuing to identify, like, you know, I play guitar all the day because I'm like, you know, I'm a guitar player. It's what I do. You know, I have to keep <laughs> keep affirming this identity. You know, and I've I've, I've definitely noticed that with myself too. And I'm like, wow, that's really interesting. And it's the same thing. Like, I like, um, you know, like I said, I've been doing all these philosophy papers. So I was like, you know, spent like three days straight just doing a philosophy paper, right? And then like on the last day, I didn't get any sleep, <laughs> right? Because my mind was still just going. You know, it couldn't stop because it, it's once it's like. Once that thinking is is in there, when you're habituated yourself so strongly to be keep figuring this out, you know that it's like <laughs> that's what it is now, you know. Uh huh. I think that part of that has to do with when we are children, when we learn things, they feel difficult, especially since the parents are pushing us. And so we get into the habit then that new things to learn are difficult and we don't begin to go back to the way that we were in early childhood and see everything as an adventure, everything is a toy, everything is to be investigated through uh, play. And so we begin to make it into work. So that also is true with your philosophy papers is that you've got them into work. You've got to figure it out. Yeah. rather than uh, coming to it from a very playful position. That playing with it will make it a whole lot easier. And not only that, but you'll probably have a shorter paper that's got more oomph to it. Yeah. Yeah, well, to be fair, I was actually, it was weird. I was actually enjoying it the more it went on. And like, I was just getting really into like, you know, going through the text and stuff and like, you know, just feels cool after a while i guess you know once you get into that understanding you know but then yeah of course the not being able to sleep thing is very unpleasant <laughs> yeah so learning then to come back mm -hmm. into a different kind of thought process that in fact this is something that i talk to the students about to make sure that they understand we use the word thought and we almost always use the word thought 
for a particular kind of thought. A verbal thought or a discursive thought or a didactic thought or words that we are talking to ourselves in. But there are many other ways of spending mind moments because we have the other five senses. So when you're actually looking at something, you're not thinking about it. You look, think, look, think. Well, that looking is a mind moment that I would call a kind of thinking. But you're doing it directly with your observation of the mind. We do that with music, too, that oftentimes when you're actually listening to the music, we are not thinking verbal thoughts, but we don't know that because we're too busy listening to the music. If you start looking at what the mind is doing, you can see that all the mind is actually listening to that music rather than talking about it. But if you do that, then you begin to talk about listening to the music. And so it gets kind of, um, how to say, interesting in that regard to recognize that there are many different kinds of thoughts. Another example of that is when someone says that I am anxious or I have stress, how do they know? Unless they spend a few mind moments actually observing the anxiety. And then the next mind moments are spent thinking about the anxiety by putting it into language. It's very much like the whole quality that you've heard this before. Uh, uh, that a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, we're living a movie, which means that we need about 24,000 words a second. <laughs> That's a great point. I like that. <laughs> and we can't keep up. <laughs> and so the verbal is almost always behind. Back in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, before television came, they would do sports on the radio, which doesn't make a lot of sense, especially boxing matches. How can you do a boxing match on the radio? It's because you have an announcer who is giving what he could call his best would be a blow-by-blow -blow description of what's happening. I think they still do that, at least for baseball. I'm pretty sure. Pardon? I think they still do that. They actually, even though they've got video now, they still have those announcers. But even on the radio, like, I'm pretty sure they still do blow by blow. Because uh -huh. I, I remember being a kid, like, listening to, like, a Giants game or something, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. But we do that kind of thing ourselves on the inside, even though we're there watching and listening and seeing our own living movie, our own television with our senses, still... We have this running blow by blow description that's going on inside the discursive mind. Yeah. And, and so, what we learn with Anapanasati is to begin to change that discursive mind into instead of talking about something else, that we begin to focus it on what our senses are saying. So we actually do a, an actual begin to do a running dialogue rather than having the action of the boxers there while the announcer is talking about dinner with his wife, right? No, we want that announcer to actually talk about the boxing that's going on, okay? So this way, that's the Anapanasati is begin to talk to ourselves about breathing, about how we feel. We begin to notice that and begin to talk that way uh, in the here now. 
by using that verbal stuff because basically we have been talking ourselves into feeling bad our whole lives. Now it's time to talk ourselves into feeling good by being good in this present moment. That's where it becomes really valuable. Once we see that, we can recognize, oh, I can choose for myself how I'm going to feel. I do not have to be subject to all of the old bad habits that I think came or that that's who I am. That we either think that we got it from society or our parents, or in many cases, they say God made me this way. No, God didn't do it. Parents didn't do it. The society didn't do it. We chose to do it that way, that two kids can grow up together in the same household, almost identical twins, and wind up being in different political parties. So it's what the individual child does. And if we can, if we see that we do that on our own, ignorantly as we were growing up, now we can do it wisely. Now we can come back and reevaluate and start looking at what's going on in this moment and begin to see that things right now are quite nice. Things right this very minute are not dangerous. Right now, there is no murder going on. Why should we bother talking about murder going on? Or I, know, whether or not... <laughs> I know, there's no, there's no murders. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Right now, right here in your world and in mine, there are no murders. All of the murders that are going on, the ones that you had there were in your mind. Those were conceptual murders, not real ones. And so by get, living in the real world, the real world is actually quite marvelous. It's the conceptualized world is full of gods and murders and uh, rules and fights and arguments and all that kind of stuff is because of concepts. But the reality of the moment is quite nice. And so spending time in this present moment and get yourself all cleaned out of all of that old conceptualized stuff, that means that when you do it well, you can deal with people who still live in concepts. But you don't have to buy their concepts anymore. You can stay real by staying in the senses, by doing the kind of thinking that has to do with what's happening right here, right now, rather than what they're thinking about. Well, I'm curious. Um, I actually heard you talking about the similar thing with someone else, and I'm actually really curious to think uh, what you think of something else. Another technique that I heard from another Dharma teacher um, that has actually been beneficial to me, I'd say. I think. I don't know. It's it's too early to tell. <laughs> I'm still checking. Um, but I think it, I think it, overall it's a good idea. Um, so you know, I had a previous experience like a couple weeks ago like you know just kind of an unpleasant thing that happened doesn't matter the specifics you know something unpleasant happened and you know it really wasn't a huge deal but i could tell um as time went went on um i was building say, just to, just as a point that something happened and you chose that it was unpleasant Right. So I started building more and more of a story around it, you know, and started attaching it more and more to my identity and, you know, thinking like I'm this kind of person, you know, and like going back and, you know, attaching it to like old memories that I've had or whatever. Um, 
And so I realized that that was happening and that I was attaching it to these old memories. Um, and I heard a technique where I was like, it's a good idea to, you know, get yourself into a good mindset, right? Clean out the mind and then visit those memories as you would see them now with this clearer mind so that you can go through, you know, like things that happened in your childhood and go through them and be like, let's apply this mindset to this, you know? And damn, that's, I think that is really effective at being like, at being able to deal with that old stuff and like being able to, cause it's like, I feel like for me, just continuing to, cause you know, present moment is great, you know? And I, um, but you know, those, those memories continue to live on in that way, I feel, even when I continue to like do present moment stuff. So it's, I find it effective um, to go back and kind of work right. through that, yeah. Archon Semedo calls that wise reflection. Right, okay. Okay, now we can know wise reflection or after we've got the mind cleaned out because if, if the mind is not cleaned out, going back into the past is going to bring up the same feelings that we had in the past or something even worse than that. And so we'll bring up the guilt. We remember doing something terrible in the past and we bring it up with guilt. Yeah. With wise reflection or with the mind that's clear, we can remember doing that with the thought of that's not me, that's not who I am. I don't do that kind of thing anymore because I can see with wisdom that that causes trouble, causes problems. And so that's not who I am. Yeah. And so that's the wise reflection that has that value. And it also has the value of um, uh, renunciation. But I have to make sure that we're talking about that there's two kinds of renunciation. There is the ordinary renunciation, and then there is the noble renunciation. The ordinary renunciation is like ordination, vows, talking about from now on, I'm not going to do this. Vows of poverty, vows of celibacy, vows of silence, vows of uh, that kind of thing, uh, almost always done in ceremonies, is done as an ordinary kind of thing, and it has ordinary values to it. But the noble renunciation is by reflecting upon our own past and recognizing that that's not who I am. I don't do that kind of stuff anymore. That's the noble renunciation of, wow, I'm not going to do that anymore. Or, but I mean, I was thinking of it, applying it to um, a, more of a context where it's like, you know, someone calls you something that, you know, really upsets you or something like that. And being able to come through at the mind where it's like, they just said a word, there was just noise being made, you know, it's that that really didn't matter, you know, like it was, uh, you know, or whatever, you know, okay. like how it, exactly yeah, precisely. Like, yeah. and how I felt that time. I don't feel that way now. I don't feel mm -hmm. like that anymore. Yeah. That's the important point also is not only that somebody called oh. you a name, but that you didn't like it back then. But now you're not that person. Mm -hmm. And now it, that kind of language doesn't bother you. Yeah, well, still need some wise reflection, <laughs> you know. 
but yeah. yes, that's that's wise reflection. That's yeah. Okay. And it's a and it's a Buddhist concept, but the ordinary person is not going to do wise reflection. He's going to be doing an ordinary reflection. He's just going to remember. And so uh, when we have the wise reflection, that has to do with that renunciation. Because otherwise, what we do is we feel guilty. I've had students ask, what do we do about guilt? And this is the answer is, is that that's not who I am anymore. I don't do that kind of stuff. I don't feel those ways. That I can renounce that. And so therefore, there's no reason to feel guilty now about something that happened back then because it happened to some other person some other time. That's not who I am now. Um, there is also from that perspective, uh, the Pali words are uh, Harry and Opata. Now, Harry uh, basically means the same thing as shyness or embarrassment. And Opata is more of uh, guilt that's real guilt in the sense of uh, uh, the shame and embarrassment of that has to do then with the renunciation that we have to, to go through that to where uh, the other kind is more about being shunned. Mm. Okay, that we don't want to be shunned because we have done something that other people disapprove of as opposed to I'm renouncing this because I disapprove of it for myself doing mm. it. Uh, and when we learn that distinction, then we can deal with both of them easily. To figure out that if you want other people to not know something that you've done, is it out of shame and being shunned, or is it out of real regret, real remorse? Because that's the one that gives us the actual power to change. The other one, the shame, the uh, uh, the being shunned, that only gives us power to hide, not to fix. <laughs> yeah. And so even when somebody's calling you a name, if you feel bad, that would be enough to say, well, I'm not going to feel bad about that anymore. That in fact, uh, in recent years, I've been called a bully. All right. <laughs> and I really like that one. <laughs> Buddha was a bull. He was a uh, bull elephant. He was strong. And so when somebody calls me a bully, that means it all. That just means that you're weak and you see me as strong. Now, there's two kinds of bullies. One is the kind of bully who is bullying someone in order to get something. And the other one is the bully who is a bully just because he is right and unmovable. Interesting. And you can't get something from some bullies because they don't see it. You know, they they've got their uh, they've got their 
their mind together or, or whatever to see it like that. So, uh, yeah, we can find any um, derogatory word and turn it around. In Sutta number 12 in the lion's roar, by the way, the Buddha says uh, when the guy, uh, when Sariputta came to talk about this guy complaining about him, he says, uh, the Buddha responded was that though he intended to blame me, he praised me instead. That example of the bully, that's a turning that around. The guy calls you a bully because he wants to blame you, put you down, tell you a bad person. You say, yeah, that's right. Thank you very much for recognizing that strength, that power, that internal fire. If somebody called me a wuss, I might feel bad, <laughs> but I maybe can be able to turn that one around also. <laughs> so that's how you can begin to think of it is, is that when somebody calls you a name, the reason that you felt bad was because you use their definition of that word rather right. than making it useful for yourself. To you say, yeah, he's right. I am that. It's a, it's an attribute. It's a quality. <laughs> totally, yeah. That's a nice way of looking at it. See the positive. <laughs> and so that's part of the renunciation is renouncing his definition of the words. You put your own in there so that you can wind up feeling the way you want to feel. Yeah. So this is another way of looking at wise reflection. The wise reflection is look at how the words are used and recognize that, yeah, he may be right, but he's actually bragging and praising me <laughs> when he intends to uh, 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 say derogatory things. By the way, that that was said by the uh, this, this thing that we're talking about with the Buddha was is that um, the guy was complaining because the Buddha had no super normal states that all he taught was suffering and the end of suffering. But he taught that well, and a lot of people were getting that point, but he didn't have any power at all. And the just an ordinary said, person, just an ordinary man. Exactly. No supernatural powers, but, but, he, but he does have the ability to help other people not be in Dukkha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this this is actually a pretty good state place for us to stop. I really enjoyed this conversation with you, you know, yeah, and I, I, and I know that morality has been a major point of uh, not just philosophy, but then they make it an assignment for you. <laughs> Bastards. <laughs> but, but when, when the mind is clear, then morality is irrelevant because you're not doing anything that's going to harm anyone because you don't want anything. You're not in harm. Well, if I could put one one last point in there about uh, philosophy, I'd say philosophy is 100% what led me to Buddhism. I don't think I would have 
been that interested in Buddhism if I wasn't interested in philosophy, especially the ancient Greek philosophers um, and uh, talking about, um, you know, like Plato or Socrates being like, what is what is the good, right? Something like that. Like, what is the end that we should uh, align ourselves to? Is it money? Well, people don't want money in them for itself. So what do they want it for? They want it for, you know, so then you get all these things, you know, generally say happiness, right? Um, so that completely restructured my whole life. You know, I mean, truly, like, I stopped doing so many things because I was like, okay, why am I doing this? I think I'm like, I'm doing this because I think it makes me happy. And I can see that it's actually not making me happy, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so yeah. I'm not going to do this anymore, <laughs> right? Because it's like... <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, it and then, you know, when I came to Buddhism, it was like, you know, applying that same thing, okay, like, and then Buddhism just hit it right on the mark, you know, it's like, this is about, you know, what is, what is life about, you know, having a good time. <laughs> well, uh, in, in that regard, Buddhism does have answers, but mostly the answer is, Never mind, that's a relevant question. <laughs> right, right. That's that's the answer to most of the questions. Is we don't need to know that. Yeah. All we need to know is enough to let's be happy. We need to know enough to know that right here, right now is safe and secure and we're okay. And when we got that, then a lot of those other questions about who did morality and all of that kind of stuff is not important. What what really is important is, is do you feel good enough to behave well? Because all morality is based upon, or let us say all of immorality is based upon bad feelings. White collar crimes is from greed. Brawls are from ill will. It's all done in ignorance. And so when we're wise and we don't want anything, the morality is a non-issue. It's an irrelevancy. Just like gods and heavens and hells and rebirths and reincarnations and all that stuff, it's all irrelevant for right now. If you're enjoying this moment, if you're not enjoying the moment, then some of that stuff may become important to you. But if you're okay right now, then we don't need any of that stuff. We don't need a God or to figure out whether there's a God or not. If there is a God, he'll show up soon enough. <laughs> we'll make friends with him when he comes. <laughs> But based oh, yeah. upon the evidence for the past 5,000 years, I'm not in a hurry. <laughs> but I mean, again, even if like some, you know, an exact depiction came out, we wouldn't even be able to tell because it's like, who knows if it's not just the alien laser beaming illusion into your mind. <laughs> well, physicists know quite a lot about laser beams. Physicists, uh, uh, philosophers don't. Philosophers, <laughs> laser beams are a concept. 
But physicists are real things. Right, but they can laser beam the physicists too, right? <laughs> I don't know of any surgery that's been done by laser like that that is doing the kind of effects that you're talking about. That's, that's exactly the same kind of thinking of people don't want the COVID-19 vaccine because it's got, uh, it's got little radio transmitters inside of that. Uh-huh. Okay. And these guys don't even know the electronics behind those things. They think that you that those transmitters are this, uh, in a liquid. Sorry, those things have to have a great big needle that have to be put under the skin. They're almost the size of a grain of rice or a grain of sand. And they don't go through those thin needles that are done with vaccines. And so, the, you know, just the physical logic of the kind of stuff. Well, the same thing with lasers. They don't know how to do lasers that they can make you jump like a chicken, but we can use hypnosis to make you jump like a chicken. We can talk you into it and let you jump <laughs> because you want to jump like a chicken. <laughs> directly control your mind. I, I, have you heard about those things where it's like electrode, they, like, they hook electrodes up to your mind or whatever, and then they, they can control your arm. And then when they're doing that, like they'll have it so that they'll make the button go or whatever. I think it's with like, electronic arms but they'll have the person's arm go and then they'll ask them why did you just raise your arm and then they'll start you know giving all these reasons as to why they they just raise their arm but they didn't raise their arm <laughs> the control on the thing that was controlling them made them raise their arm but it's just the point that we don't know when we're being controlled because <laughs> that's just not something that we could know that guy did because he was in that scientist's office with all of that equipment hooked up to him. Right. You are sitting in your room with none of that stuff. Right. As far as I know. <laughs> no, wait a minute. What you know is for your own ears. It's your concepts is what you know about being hooked up to all of that stuff. That's a good point. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. Yeah, totally. That's that, but, that ultimate reality but, is here. But a, but a good electrical engineer will walk in there and say, no, you're not hooked up to anything. Yeah, totally. It's only the philosophers that are out there saying, well, what if? Because they don't know the physics behind it. Yeah, well, like technology gets pretty good pretty fast. Yes, it does, but not as fast as your mind. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> That in fact, the right way to do it is keep track of what um, uh, Neuralink is doing, Elon Musk. Yeah. Okay, because they're actually there trying to help people regain control over their limbs. Okay. But it, but the Christians, when they hear about that research, they'll say mind control. <laughs> well, I mean, because that's the danger of it, right? Because you can be like any technology can be used for good. Or give you for bad. <laughs> That's another what ifism. It's it's just what about it? It's not it, well, no, it's not there yet. When it is there yet, <laughs> you'll still have to go to the hospital to have it implanted. And you'll know whether you're doing that or not. Yeah. Ideally. They could still get you in their sleep. <laughs> Well, 
blew it that they out there that are that are putting these very expensive little. Yeah, no, I don't want. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not to trying to really have to think things. Yeah, we really have to look at the reality of the situation, so that we don't have to go down those rabbit holes of what ifs. Right now, you're okay. I'm not worried about it. <laughs> Because you if they're controlling spent five minutes trying to convince me to be worried about I <laughs> know that's not at all. Not at all. <laughs> I just I just think it's a reality. It's a possibility. I mean that's that's it's it's just a, not you know, this fact. year's possibility. Sorry? Not this year's possibility. Fair enough. Hey, I don't run the world yet. They can't even make them get a good car going. But no. they will. They will. So we don't have to worry about all of that. What we only have to worry about is right here, right now. And if that stuff comes into your right here, right now, then we can deal with it. But right here, right now, we don't have to deal with it. It's just merely a concept. Yeah, well. <laughs> We're definitely not wrapping this up. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up with that point that okay, sure. the reality is right here, right now, and the more we're in the right here, right now, enjoying it, then the, the closer we are to reality, the closer we are to happiness, the closer we are to satisfaction. And the further we get away from the here now, the further into concepts we get, and the more dangerous we can conceive. Yeah, I'll say like last thing for me to say, I one thing that I have realized that it's like incredible. It's like actually how small our minds are, you know, compared to like everything else that's going around. You know, it's incredible. It's just such a like a little thing or whatever, you know. And just... I I know we are so <laughs> so vulnerable, and yet I'm surviving. Yeah. The world is not out to destroy me. The world is out to support me, and I accept that support. Happily. Without having to ask too many questions about it. <laughs> <laughs> you can just accept reality as it is. Well, you know, let's go ahead and finish. I'm really glad that you called. This, I, I like the approach that we have together about you learning the Dhamma from this intellectual approach, but it also would be very valuable for you to 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 actually practice. To I actually keep deep, keep getting these uh, uh, unwholesome thoughts out of the mind and come back to the reality is right now everything's okay. Right now everything is fine. Right now no place to go and nothing to do. And that's especially valuable right after you finish those papers. And the mind is still grinding and turning and earning. Just occasionally have thought, never mind about all of that. I could just relax. Yeah. Okay. All we'll right, see. sir. I'll see you around. Okay. We'll see you soon. See you.